Well, this morning, with it being Palm Sunday, I want to just take a a brief uh, break from Hebrews and turn our attention to John chapter 18. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John and land there in verse 18. As finite and limited creatures, we human beings are fascinated by the future. Many live in anticipation of the future. Some live in fear of the future. Unbelievers even go to look for the future through people who are self-proclaimed fortune tellers and palm readers, all wanting to know what happens next. Even as believers, we have to be careful to constantly measure our thoughts to, against the scripture to make sure that we're not anxious or fearful about what tomorrow may bring. And our utter inability to know the future or control the future is really part of the fabric of our humanness. But of course, when it comes to the character of God and his attributes, we understand that God is nothing like us in that regard. God instead is is said to have perfect knowledge of the future and perfect control over the future. God is omniscient, he knows all things, and he is omnipotent, he is powerful over all things, and those attributes come together so that God not only knows the future, he declares the future, and he brings the future to its culmination. Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10 says this about God, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God declares what will happen from the beginning before it takes place. And you know, if we're not careful as Christians, we can sort of get caught up in the daily routines of life, the the mundane, and start to live as if life is just sort of happening on its own. But the scriptures declare that that the future is not simply unfolding, it is being unfolded by God himself. And we see this nowhere more clearly than how the Bible explains that God has unfolded his plan of redemption. Really, all the way from the beginning to the end, even now, God is working out his plan of redemption. And we see a demonstration of that this morning in our text in John chapter 18. Before we dive into this specific passage, let me just bring us up to speed with what John has covered to this point. Remember, we have four Gospels. We have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the Synoptic Gospels. That word means they, they see together or they see with. That's why there's a lot of overlap in the content in those three Gospels. Uh, John has more unique material than any of the other Gospels and includes some things and some details for us that are unique, as we'll see this morning. And understand that as each of the gospel writers are inspired to write, they're not simply giving us a historical account of the events of Christ's life. They do that, certainly. But each of the authors is intending to to compile a certain list of events from the life of Christ for us to know something about him, to teach us theology about Christ. In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. Over and over again, this is the resounding theme. We, we see this demonstrated in places like chapter 1, the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He goes on to define the word as being Christ himself. We see examples like John chapter 8 and John chapter 10 where Jesus takes to himself uh, attributes of deity, even the name of God himself, the name of I am. And in this gospel, John dedicates nine chapters, think about that, nine chapters to the last week of Jesus' life. This is the, the Passion Week This is the week that we're entering into in our our celebration of Resurrection Sunday next week. Leading into this passage, uh, the the, the disciples as well as really all the Jews are coming into Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. Tensions are high. Tensions are mounting around this person, Jesus Christ. Just who is he? Who does he claim to be? The religious elite have reached their limit with Jesus. They're ready to destroy him, to to kill him and set him aside. The common people are mesmerized by Jesus. In fact, hailing him as king as he enters into Jerusalem. His disciples are convinced that he is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're wondering if now perhaps is the time in which Jesus will rally the nation and overthrow Roman oppression and be seated physically on his throne as the king of kings. But all the while Jesus knows that the true purpose for his coming is about to be fulfilled. We see this in John chapter 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Our passage in chapter 18 comes on the heels of chapters 13 to 17, which really are one long dialogue on this evening as he begins in the upper room in chapters 13 and 14. We know those scenes of the last supper there as Jesus instructs his disciples and identifies Judas as the betrayer. In chapters 15 to 16, Jesus continues to talk with his disciples as they leave the upper room and begin to make their way out of Jerusalem. And in chapter 17, we have that famous prayer, the high priestly prayer of Christ as he prays for his disciples and prays to the Father over all the things that are about to take place in his crucifixion. Now that all of that has been said, all that's left to do now is for Jesus to actually fulfill what has been determined and ordained about him even from his own mouth and certainly from eternity past. Let's read our text this morning, John 18, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, 
let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This passage really teaches us one grand truth, and it's this. Jesus demonstrates his divinity by orchestrating the events of his own arrest. Jesus demonstrates his divinity by orchestrating the events of his own arrest. In these verses, there are many characters mentioned, but it's, it's clear that Jesus is the central focus. And John wants us to, to know here at the, at the culmination of his gospel that, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and that he proves that here with three demonstrations, three demonstrations of the divinity of Christ. The first demonstration is this, in verses 1 to 3, Jesus orchestrated his own arrest. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now those words may refer just to the prayer in verse, uh, chapter 17, or it could encompass all of chapter 13 to 17 because Jesus has been speaking since the upper room through the end of this prayer in chapter 17. But after he said and prayed all that he is going to say, he begins his journey now to the place where he knows that he will eventually be arrested, which will then lead to the cross. So after saying these words, the text continues, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden. Now, this going forth is not him leaving the upper room. At the end of chapter 14, John says they leave the upper room. They've been walking now uh, out to get outside this, the walls of Jerusalem. So they're, they're leaving the city, and they're crossing over this ravine, the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is east of Jerusalem, so picture the Temple Mount, and there's this valley, the Kidron Valley. It goes up then to the Mount of Olives. It's actually a really wonderful, beautiful site, a place to stand uh, even today, to look from the Mount of Olives over the, the valley to the Temple Mount. Much of the year that valley is dry. It only fills with water during the rainy season, so it would have been easy for them to cross. They, they come down out of the city, and, and we might falsely think in, in immediately here that Jesus is sort of fleeing He's, he's leaving the city to, to get away because he knows that Judas is about to betray him. But what we find as we look at the details of the passage is that Jesus is not fleeing. He's not running from anyone. In fact, Jesus is leaving the city and going up to the Mount of Olives is a demonstration of the fact that he's completely in control of the events that are happening. Because look at where they're headed. They cross this ravine where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now apparently there on the Mount of Olives at this time there was a private garden where, where Jesus had, had been given permission by the owner of that garden to use this for his own purposes, for his rest, for he and his disciples. Matthew and Mark named the garden as the Garden of Gethsemane, which in Hebrew means oil press. This is an area covered with olive trees, the Mount of Olives, and so there was likely an oil press there in the garden. Picture a beautiful walled garden. This is probably a privately owned uh, place where a wealthy follower of Christ has given him permission to use this. But the question is, why did he go there? 
Of all the places that Jesus could have taken his disciples on this night before his crucifixion, why to this particular garden? Well, the answer comes to us in verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. Now we understand why Jesus chose to take his disciples across the valley to this garden on the Mount of Olives. It was because Jesus had a divine appointment with his betrayer, a divine appointment that had been set before the creation of the world. Jesus knew and publicly announced that he would betray. In chapter 13, he actually told them who the betrayer was. Look at John 13, verses 21 to 27 here in the upper room. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Jesus chose Judas Iscariot to be one of his disciples. He invited him into his inner circle. Yet from the beginning, Jesus knew that he would be the betrayer. And astonishingly, Jesus predetermined the place in which he would be betrayed, and then he made sure that Judas would know exactly where to find him. You say, how did he do that? Well, he tells us here in verse 2. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. How did he know the place? For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he made it his regular habit to go and rest here in this garden. In fact, his famous sermon on the, on the Mount of Olives takes place there in that region. He went there often. In fact, Luke specifies that during the Passion Week, uh, he would go there every night. Luke 21, 37 says, Now during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. He says later in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 39, And he came out and proceeding as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Dan Carson writes in his commentary that at this time there was a restriction on the Jewish people. All of those who came to celebrate Passover, there was sort of a, a circle, an extended city limit around Jerusalem, and the Jews weren't allowed to travel beyond that during this time. They had to stay within that circle. The Garden of Gethsemane was within that boundary, but Bethany, the town that Jesus would often go to to rest, was outside the circle. So Jesus going to this garden was not just to rest, but probably to spend the night there, um, and knowing he would be there for the entirety of the evening. And John wants us to see that while Jesus is the one being betrayed, he's also the one orchestrating the entire thing, proving that he is, in fact, the Son of God. You know, when any other person thinks they're about to be arrested and they don't want to be arrested, what do they do? They begin to think of their normal patterns of activities and they say, you know, if I would normally go here, I'm not going to go there, right? I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to make sure that I'm somewhere that they won't expect. And yet Jesus doesn't break his pattern. He intentionally goes to exactly the place that Judas knows he would be taking them. 
And he does it because he wanted to be found there. Only the Son of God could know this would happen, declare it before it happens, and then bring it about. The passage goes on then in verse 3 to say, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas, obviously knowing where to find him, betrays him. He leads this procession to the exact private garden in which he knows Jesus and the disciples will be. And notice this mixture of people. This is really an odd pairing. The Jews and the Romans didn't typically mix well. And yet when they have a common enemy, they seem to do just fine. Because we have here the Roman cohort on the one hand. What's a Roman cohort? Well, understand, it's hard for us to picture this, but imagine Jerusalem bursting at the seams with Jews who have come from all over to celebrate. You know, it was a command. They were commanded by God to celebrate Passover and to make this pilgrimage. So Jews are coming from everywhere so that the population of the city would have been exploding on these festival times, especially at Passover. The Romans want to be careful that that nothing breaks out here. They, They don't want a riot to break out. And so it was the Romans' custom to beef up the military support there in Jerusalem when the Passover was taking place. So there are more Roman soldiers there than there would normally be. A cohort typically would have been a thousand men. But they could section that off into different groups. It could Sometimes it was 600 men, sometimes as little as 200 men. But either way, this Roman cohort was hundreds of Roman soldiers taken from this group of extra soldiers brought in for the protection of, of the, the city. And it makes sense, right? The Jews come to the Romans and say, we're about to go arrest this man who many of the people believe to be the Messiah. If something's going to cause a riot, it would be this, potentially. So the Romans go not to make the arrest. The Jews are going to make the arrest, as we'll see. But they go to make sure nothing breaks out. They go to make sure that if the crowd gets involved, that they can tamp down any disruption. So you have this cohort that was probably at least 200, maybe more soldiers. And then you have what we'll call the temple police. He describes them here as officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The chief priests and the Pharisees, this is a way of saying the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin sends out a a delegation, the temple police, if you will, to go and make the actual arrest on their behalf. Luke records in Luke 22, 52, that even the chief priests themselves went along with these police officers to oversee the proceedings and to make sure that everything went smoothly. And so here's this, this strange mixture of of Gentile and Jew coming together to arrest Jesus. And and the Jews are coming to arrest their arch enemy who just so happens to also be their king and Messiah. This was intended to be intimidating. Think of it this way. In our modern day era, picture a a small armed army led by a SWAT team and high-ranking government officials coming to your door with a warrant for your arrest. That's the scene here. It's, it's, It's meant to be an overwhelming show of force. Only Jesus' response is anything but fearful. In fact, he uses this as an opportunity to prove yet again his divinity. This is a second demonstration of his divine nature. Jesus protected his chosen disciples. Not only does he orchestrate the place of his arrest, he protects his disciples in verses 4 to 9. Look back at verse 4. 
So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. Now stop there for a moment. This is an interesting parenthetical statement. The verb here is he went forth. He could have just said, so Jesus went forth, but he doesn't. In between so and went forth, he adds this important piece of information that Jesus knew all the things that were going to be coming upon him. And so he makes an intentional choice is the idea. Jesus Christ, the God who, who, who predetermined these things in eternity past, of course he knows every minute detail of what's about to take place. You know, the scriptures often compare Jesus to those sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that were brought as really a foreshadowing to point to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Lamb of God. We see this described in places like Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. But understand that there's an incredible difference that John wants us to pick up on here between those physical lambs that were sacrificed that pointed to Christ and the willing sacrifice of Christ. Because those animals went to their death unwittingly. They had no knowledge that they were about to be killed. Jesus went like a lamb to slaughter in the sense that he didn't fight back and his mouth was closed before his oppressors and yet he went with full knowledge of everything that was going to happen to him. He went with full intentionality. Think on that. John 10, 17 to 18 for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. What can we say to these things except hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Jesus knew it all. And yet the very next words are, he went forth. Knowing all that was coming upon him, he didn't run away. He walked headlong into it. Luke 9.51, speaking of Jesus preparing to go to Jerusalem, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a passage that should call us to worship our Savior with renewed appreciation for what he has done for you and me if we're in Christ. Our Savior was not simply a martyr who was a good man who was unjustly killed. No, he was the divine Son of God who willingly chose to take on human flesh for the very purpose of giving that flesh with full knowledge as a sacrifice for you and I. This was his plan from the beginning. As the angel declared to Joseph on, leading up to his birth, Matthew one twenty one, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That is, you shall call his name Yahweh saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to die and rise again. And we see that here as a personal choice in this statement that Jesus, knowing all was coming upon him, went forth. He went forth. Now, picture this. Jesus is in per perhaps this, this walled-in private 
garden there on the Mount of Olives, the, this big procession comes with, with torches and lanterns, thinking maybe they're going to have to search for him hiding in the darkness. But no, Jesus comes and walks to the front of that entrance, and he meets them there. He, he comes forth, it says. They don't have to search for him. They don't have to, to go and use their lanterns and their torches. Jesus comes, and John records that it's Jesus who's first to speak. Understand that John intentionally leaves out some of the details that the synoptic gospels include to help us see this this picture of Christ as the divine son of God. Looking at it from another angle, Jesus goes forth to the entrance of the garden and he speaks first and he speaks with a question. And he said to them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? It's interesting, Jesus begins with a question that he obviously already knows the answer to. And this is not by mistake. Jesus never makes mistakes. He never does things casually. This is on on purpose. This is a calculated question. And for reasons that will become clear here in a moment, we'll see that he has an intention here. It's likely the, the temple police who answer him, perhaps the chief priest, but... He's essentially asking, whose name is on your arrest warrant? Think of it. Who who have you come to arrest? And they answer him, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was not an uncommon name at the time, and so they specify not just any Jesus, this specific Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. By this time, Judas would have already betrayed Jesus with a kiss, signaling to everyone, this is the guy, not as if the The chief priests needed that. They knew what Jesus looked like. The thing is, everyone standing here in this moment knows exactly who the players are. They know that this is Jesus, and Jesus knows that they've come for him. But none of them are prepared for what happens next. Because Jesus replies to their statement that they've come for Jesus the Nazarene with two simple Greek words. Ego eimi. He says, he said to them, I Am. Now, I know in your English translation it says, I am he, but that word he should be in italics because it's added. Literally, the Greek text says, I am, is the response that Jesus gave. Now, it is true, it's not inappropriate to add the word he. It is true that a person could simply identify himself by saying, I am. But when we look at this in context, and when we look at it in the larger context of John and how Jesus uses that phrase, ego a me, it's it's an emphatic way of saying, I, I am this person. We understand that Jesus intends not only to identify himself as Jesus the Nazarene, but as Jesus who is Almighty God. And we're going to see that clearly because John records that something happens in conjunction with Jesus declaring these words, I am. But before he gets to that, he wants us to understand exactly where Judas is standing, which is interesting. He he adds this detail So that we understand what side Judas is on, it says, And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. It's almost as if this divine dividing line has been drawn. Jesus is here, likely his disciples are behind him or next to him. And there's Judas, one of the twelve. He's crossed the line, he stands there with the betrayers. He has crossed over to become an accuser of his Savior, the one that he's seen in an intimate way display who he is, and yet there he is, standing on the wrong side of the line. 
And what happens next to these accusers also happens to Judas. Because the text goes on to say, So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, there are many who want to try to explain this away. They do all that they can to try to explain how this is not a supernatural happening. And the leading theory for how this might have happened in a non-supernatural way is that they were, they were, they were shocked by the fact that Jesus came forth. And when he says, I am, it, it sort of scares them. And the people in the front fall backwards. And they fall into the people behind them who fall into the people behind them. And there's this domino effect and they all fall down. Now, now that's embarrassing, right? <laughs> to, to think that this Roman cohort of trained military soldiers is, is so helpless that they stand there as they all fall over like dominoes. No, they all fell down. But they didn't fall down because of some natural thing in which somebody tripped and fell and started this domino effect. They fell down because Almighty God made them fall down. Jesus Christ, it's, it's as if for a moment he, he just quickly peels back his, his flesh so that they can see his divine power and it knocks them to the ground. With those words, I am, he declares himself to be Jesus the Nazarene who is also the God-man, the Son of God. He's doing what the Bible calls using the sword of his mouth. And the, the thing is, this is, This is just a drop in the bucket of what we will see when Jesus uses the sword of his mouth when he comes again. Revelation 19 describes it this way. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the sword of his mouth. Just for a brief moment, he lets them see who they're dealing with as he says, I am, and they fall to the ground. Understand that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either voluntarily or involuntarily. But when he comes, no one will be left standing. And this is just a small glimpse of his power. A small glimpse of what he could have done had he wanted to free himself from this moment. And yet he doesn't. He goes forth. And in almost, as we think of it, kind of a comical scene now. This group is left scrambling, and they we can see them getting back to their feet and dusting off, perhaps looking sheepishly at one another like, what just happened? And Jesus continues the Q&A, and he asks them again, whom do you seek? 
Now, this is not emphasized in the text, but I can't help but, but notice what should be happening right now. There's this group of people. Jesus has just knocked them to the ground with two simple words, and people should be coming up trembling before him, recognizing we, we should not be arresting this man. This man is, is the son of God. What are we doing? But no one does that. And that's because in our depravity, in the depths of human depravity, until God regenerates us and makes us new and gives us eyes to see, even a miracle such as this will not be enough to break the hardened heart of sin. And so they continue on with their same answer to his question, and they say, Jesus the Nazarene. That's who they have come to arrest. We're here to arrest Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why this display? That's the question. If Jesus knows why they're there, they know why they're there, why ask this question now two times? Jesus reveals the answer now in what he says next. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. This has been the point. It's so that they would arrest only him and allow the 11 remaining disciples to go free. It's as if Jesus is saying, you now have declared with your own mouth two times that only my name is on that arrest warrant. So don't touch my disciples. In fact, these, this word, these words here, let these go, is actually a command. This is an imperative. Let them go. He, he stands flat-footed, and he dictates the terms of his arrest. It's me you're after. Don't touch these. John leaves us no room for mistaking who it is that's in charge here. He picked his own betrayer. He picked the place in which he would be betrayed. Now he dictates the terms of his own arrest. But what exactly is his concern for the disciples? Why is it that he goes through this in order to protect them? Is he just concerned about their physical safety? Is that that the end goal here? Well, he goes on to tell us why he is so concerned of this. Verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke... Of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. Jesus intervenes on behalf of the remaining disciples so that the prophetic words that he himself spoke earlier in John 17 would be fulfilled. In John 17, as part of his prayer in verse 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Notice he says he was keeping them in his name. He was keeping them in faith, faithfulness and faith in Yahweh. Jesus has kept them safe to the very end. And so as we compare John 17, 12 with the, the quote here, what we have to understand is that Jesus is concerned about more than just their physical safety. After all, most of the apostles would be killed for their faith. Most of their, them, for, for most of them, their physical safety would be in danger. For all of them, their physical safety was in danger. And so it, it can't just be about their physical safety, and yet here he is physically keeping them from persecution and harm in this moment. So where is the connection? Well, as we put all this together, we have to say that Jesus and his divine omniscience knew that if the disciples at this particular moment experienced physical persecution for their faith, their faith would fail. 
And this is an impossibility. Jesus has committed himself to keeping them in the faith. But it's an impossibility not because of the disciples. It's an impossibility because of the work of God. It's impossible because God will not allow it to happen. And so Jesus demonstrates not only his faithfulness to the Father, but his faithfulness to love his own, the unconditional love of Christ for his own people. And in an action that's incredible here, we see that as Jesus prepares to be the sacrificial lamb, he also acts as the good shepherd to lay down his life in protection of the sheep. Christians, we can't miss the significance of what this means for us. If you are a believer, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that he will finish the work that he began in you. And we see it here in the way he protects the 11 remaining disciples. Our confidence in the eternal security of our salvation doesn't rest upon our own ability to keep ourselves in the faith. Listen, if it was up to you and up to me to keep ourselves in the faith, we would lose our salvation. But that's an impossibility because God himself has committed to keeping us in the faith. It reveals that God will never allow it to happen. It, it does tell us that there are circumstances and trials that if God were to allow them into our life, they would put our faith in danger. But what we see here is that God is committed to keeping us from those kinds of trials. God puts us through trials, through difficulties, but for our good, for our growth, for our, the, the strengthening of our faith, but never to tear our faith apart. And we can say that this is a picture that should encourage us because elsewhere he says that this is his commitment not just for the eleven, but for all of his disciples. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The reason that we are eternally secure is because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and he will hold us fast. He will not lose even one. He will not lose even you, Christian. He will hold you fast. Just in case we are tempted still to doubt that he controls all things, even the outcome of all things, we see a third and final demonstration of the deity of Christ here on display in this account. Jesus accomplished his Father's will, verses 10 to 11. Looking back at verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Here's Peter. We've come to know him now as sometimes being impulsive, sometimes being rash. And I think it's important for us to step back, though, and not be too harsh in our judgment of Peter here, but to look at things from his perspective for just a moment. Peter knew who Jesus was. He was fully convinced. There was, there was no more miracle that he needed, no more convincing. Remember, Jesus, or, or Peter's the one who made the good confession about Jesus in Matthew 16. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Peter had already embraced the truth that John is proving to us in his gospel. And so Peter is ready to stand up and fight against all enemies of the king of kings. In his view, all that's left to do now is for Jesus to rise up, overthrow the Romans, and to take his place as king and sit on the throne. After all, they just came into town earlier this week. Everyone's hailing him as king. It seems like the stage is perfectly set for, in Peter's mind. Not to mention, Peter knows the Old Testament. He knows about David and Goliath. He knows about Moses and the Egyptians. He knows about Gideon and the Midianites. He knows about Joshua and the walls of Jericho falling down at a trumpet blast. He knows and he believes that that same God is the God here standing next to him. Not to mention he just saw all of the soldiers fall flat on their face after Jesus responds with two words. And so Peter says, the time has come. The time has come. God is with us. We can't lose. And he grabs his sword and he goes to kill this man in front of him. Understand, he cuts off his ear, not because that's what he was aiming for, as if this was a warning blow. He cuts off his ear because he's trying to hit him on the crown of the head. And the guy moves his head and it cuts off his ear. But Peter is all in. Peter's ready to go to war. And yet after this swing, this blow of the sword, there's not this rush behind him of the other disciples and, and Jesus coming out with the sword of his mouth mowing them down. But he realizes, wait a minute. Maybe I've miscalculated. Maybe I've missed something. He records the name of this slave for us. We don't know anything about this man other than his name was Malchus, but this reminds us these are real people, real events that really happened. And understand from a human perspective, Peter's just endangered the agreement that Jesus just made to protect the rest of the disciples. Maybe they're going to change their mind. He's pulling out swords and chopping off ears. Maybe we are going to take these guys, at least this one, into custody. Luke records for us in Luke twenty two fifty one that Jesus actually then healed the man's ear right there on the spot, which helps move things over, I'm sure. Also a miracle that should have gotten everyone's attention. But apparently they go, okay, miracle worker, let's, let's get you in, arrested, blinded by their sin. But Jesus speaks softly to Peter. And though Peter knows who Jesus is, he's misunderstood what Jesus has come to do in his first coming. And so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. Basically, it's as if Jesus said, stop this and put the sword away. And just as he did with Peter in Matthew 16 when he rebukes Peter for for questioning him and the fact that he's come to be crucified, Jesus turns Peter's attention from a human agenda to the divine agenda, and he says this, The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it, Peter? Often in the scriptures, God's wrath is pictured as a, a cup filled to the brim, and the, the, the recipient of that wrath is, drinks that or it's poured out on them. In this case, Jesus willingly accepts the cup of God's wrath, the suffering that's about to be laid upon him, not just physically, but the outpouring of the wrath of the Father on the cross. He takes that cup symbolically here with these words and says, Shall I not drink it, Peter? Showing his resolve to obey the Father, to redeem his people. We see here both the humble submission of Christ and the divine power of Christ to complete 
the will of the Father. It reminds us of the words we read earlier in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And so we see his power to protect the disciples, even in the face of their own foolishness here. And we see his heart of submission. There's not a hint of reservation, not a hint of sadness or despair in his words. There's only a resolute commitment to set his face towards the cross. And so it couldn't be more clear that Jesus' death on the cross is not simply a case of a good man martyred. It's a case of the God-man intentionally giving his life, taking the wrath of God upon himself as a ransom for many. This is the message of John 18. But how should we respond? How should this affect you and me this morning? Well, there are a few obvious ways. First of all, submit to Jesus as Lord. This morning, we're like those soldiers and those officers who are beholding the divinity of Christ on display, and those men chose to harden their hearts against him. The question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to this revelation of Jesus Christ here in John 18? Have you come to understand the true significance of the cross of Christ? Have you come to understand that that God determined that the cross would be his plan of redemption before he even created the world? That he would display his glory through the gracious gift of his Son? And that the Son graciously submitted to the will of the Father to redeem us, to bring us back by his own blood, to ransom us from our own sin. You understand that this morning that you are a sinner, that you need that rescue, that you need the blood of Christ poured out for you. Do you understand that Jesus Christ really is who he said he is when he says, I am the I am. He is God in human flesh and that only by putting your faith in his sacrifice Turning from your sins and repentance to Jesus as Lord, can you be forgiven of your sins? There is nothing that you and I can do to offer to God that he would accept to make ourselves right with him. The only thing he will accept is what his precious son has accomplished. But he's done it all. He's done it all. All that's left is to humble yourself in faith and repentance in this, the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, if you're in Christ... Trust Jesus as your shepherd. Trust Jesus as your shepherd. Jesus promised that he would not lose even one of those that the Father had given to him. This was certainly true of the disciples, but it goes beyond them. It extends to every single Christian who will ever or has ever believed in Christ. He's the good shepherd, and today he will hold you fast, Christian. He will allow trials in your life, and you may come to the brink in which you think, I'm not sure if I can take much more of this, but trust me, Christian, he will hold you fast, and he means it for your good. And just as he protected the disciples from a situation that would shipwreck their faith, he will protect you and hold you in his hand. So trust him today as the good shepherd who sustains your faith, who will bring you safely home to himself. Thirdly, Rely on Jesus' future promises. Rely on Jesus' future promises. Jesus' death and resurrection happened just in the way he said they would. 
And we should look at that and then have faith that the rest of his promises that are yet to be fulfilled will happen exactly as he said they would. And so notice what he said in John 14 was not just that he would die, but he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is the promise that we look forward to. The Jesus who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, who ascended to the Father, will come again, and he's coming for us. He's coming to bring us to himself. He will mow down his enemies, and he will set up his throne. But the promises that he's given to us of coming, that we might live with him as our God, as our king, even as our friend, will surely take place just as surely as these events took place. If he was faithful to fulfill the words he gives us here, then he'll be faithful to fulfill the words that have yet to be fulfilled. Do you believe that, Christian? Then this morning, may we say together, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these truths are overwhelming for us as we see such clear displays of your majesty, the intentionality with which you went to the cross, that you might redeem us, make us new, ultimately to bring us to be with you. How we pray that our, our hearts would just see it anew, just rejoice freshly in the gift of grace that you've given to us. How we pray for those who may be with us who have not yet come to know you, that today would be the day by your grace that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and redeem them. For those of us in Christ, may we take heart this morning that you will hold us fast, you will bring us to yourself, and that you are coming again. And we can trust it just as surely as we trust that you gave your life and that you rose again. God, strengthen our faith in these things as we worship you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.